Good morning, how's everyone? Good, I'm so glad you're here. If you're new and you don't know me, my name's Eric, and I'd love to meet you out in the courtyard after the service. Uh, in the Welcome Center out in the courtyard, we have gifts, literature, ways for you to connect to our church. We'd love to help you do that. Um, just a few announcements. For Christmas Eve, it's on a Sunday, so we will not have morning church. We'll meet at 3 and 4.30. And so nothing in the morning, evening, Christmas Eve, that'll be our morning service. Uh, make sure you get here early. It's you're usually pretty packed, so if you want a good seat. Um, and if someone takes your seat, it's okay, okay? So just maybe get used to that. We have guests coming, and we want them to have lots of room. Uh, second thing is our church business meeting. Uh, to approve the annual budget for next year will be next week after church, after this service, uh, in the activity center, the building across here from us. And then uh, last thing just to think through and pray through is uh, we end our year in December. And so each year we depend on December to kind of make up any ground that's lost. So if you look in the bulletin, you'll see that we're we're behind a little bit. Nothing to panic about, but uh, one thing I've learned is when we're behind, the church is like, why didn't you say anything? And so here, we're saying something, letting you know, and just ask that you would pray. We have a lot of new people. Uh, God's growing our church. Uh, but sometimes with new people, the giving doesn't catch up because they're still kind of checking it out and they're not sure. And so if you're able to, just pray about that, helping us meet our goal uh, to continue what God's doing here. And so we're thankful for that. And just thank you for all the generosity to help the gospel go uh, to the ends of the earth, to the, to the other nations, that Christians would be strengthened and that churches would be planted through Market of Hope. We thank you for that. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to hop right into Matthew chapter 16. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much that you love us, uh, that you communicate your word to us. And it's our prayer that your word would uh, be a lamp unto our feet. It would guide us. It would teach us. It would correct us. Uh, it would help us fall more in love with you. And so we pray that these uh, verses would be cherished and dear to our heart, that you would meet with us and teach us this morning. And so we love you and we praise you. We ask for you to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is probably one of the most contested passages in all the Bible. And so you're going to need to uh, maybe wake yourself up. If you struggle with paying attention, you're going to have to shake, get ready, and lock in, because um, there's a lot of information and so I know with that, you're like, what does this all mean? It'll come together. Um, but I, when I say this, uh, there's two things about this passage. One, it's one of the most important passages. Um, but two, it, it might be one of the most helpful passages when you get in a conversation with somebody of a different religion or a different um, ideology. So it's important. So just stay with me um, because there's so much here. So as we get in, uh, remember these two things. What's been going on in the storyline of Matthew? Lately, Jesus has been trying to teach them really two things that are essential for us too. Who is Jesus and what is the kingdom? And he keeps asking them, and I've tried to walk through this with you guys. He says, do you understand? They're like, yes, we understand. He's like, no, you don't. Do you understand? Yes, we understand. No, you don't. Just last week, he said, do you understand? They're like, yes, no, you don't. You don't understand. It's not about the bread, right? Pastor Chris went over that last week. He did a great job. And so Jesus is helping them come to a fuller, more complete understanding of what is the kingdom and who is Jesus. And so right here in this passage, uh, Jesus asks the most important question you will ever answer. It's the most important question in all the world. Who is Jesus? Who is the son of man? 
How you answer that one question determines heaven and hell. That's why it's the most important question in all the world. Okay. Now, to build on that, the reason it's so important is that Jesus makes the claim. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the Son of God. He is necessary for salvation. So you have to then make a decision based on his claim. Do you believe it or not? Now, here's what's so important. I want you to catch this. It's not just a declaration. And what you're going to see with Peter and what Jesus is doing with the disciples is your declaration has to be matched by your response. Your obedience needs to dictate your declaration. Meaning, does your life reflect the declaration you made that Jesus is Lord, he is Savior, and he is King? And so does your lifestyle reflect that declaration? And you're like, I don't, I don't know if I see that all the way. So just a preview, I want you to see this. Anytime you come to a passage, make sure you read upstream and downstream. Read the verses before, read the verses after. Peter's going to make this great declaration. Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah. And then what's going to happen next week is Jesus is going to rebuke or be rebuked by Peter. And then Jesus calls Peter Satan. And it's like, Peter, is your behavior reflecting your declaration? Because if your behavior reflected your declaration, you wouldn't rebuke Jesus and you wouldn't tell Jesus that he's wrong. So that's the grand kind of narrative of what's going on. So let's start. Here we go. Verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Okay, this is important. We have three titles. We need to understand all three titles. We have the son of man, the son of God, and the Christ. So when you look at that, Jesus is combining all of these aspects that you understand. He is all three. If you miss one, you miss Jesus. And so this is important because there's going to be different religions that'll take a part of Jesus and get part of it right. This is why it's so important that you base who Christ is based on what he says. Okay, so let's walk through the three titles and then look at what it means. So it says that he is the son of man. What does that mean? Read through Daniel 7. Son of man is the term used. He's a king. He's in charge. He's going to have a kingdom. That kingdom's going to rule forever. All the nations are going to be subject to him and they're going to have to listen to him. So he is in a sense saying, who do they say the king of humanity is? And that's title one. Two, Peter responds, you're the Christ, right? That word means Messiah. You're the one to save the people from their sins. You're the promised one from Genesis 3, the one who's going to crush the head of the snake. You're from Abraham, the one who will be provided to take away the sins uh, of the people, of your children. Okay? And then the third, the son of God. He's uncreated. He's God. He's deity. And so Jesus says he's all three. And this is what Peter's response is. Now, why is this important? Okay, if you talk to a Mormon, they're going to say, hey, I believe in Jesus. But who do they say Jesus is? They're going to say, well, Jesus is a God, little God. He's a created being. I mean, and as he became God, so can we. Man became God, God become man in that cycle. So people can become God. That's a different Jesus, isn't it? Okay. He says he's the son of God. He's eternal, meaning he doesn't have a beginning. Okay. 
He is God. It's a different Jesus. This is why this matters. Okay? If you were to look at a Muslim, who do they say Christ is? Because they believe he's real. They say he's a prophet, just like it says right here. They say he's John the Baptist. They say he's Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So no deity, just a prophet. Okay, side mark, prophets don't lie. Jesus said what? Son of God. He's God, so he makes the claim. So if he never, if prophet never lies, then he has to be true what he proclaimed, right? So you follow it, different Jesus. Okay, this last one's gonna be a little hard, but you gotta follow me. Okay, you gotta follow me on this. I'm not trying to be mean, but it's important. Okay, what do Catholics believe? Catholics believe you're saved by what? Works. Jesus says he's the Messiah. He's the lamb. He's the full payment. So if you believe you're saved by works, Jesus does part of the work. And then who does the rest of the work? We do. Your works do. That's a different Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, takes the full payment of sins. He's the once for all payment. That's why the three titles matter. Jesus is helping them understand he is the savior, full payment, perfect payment. Man on our behalf, fully God, conquers death, conquers sin. So all three titles matter. Now here's the, the, the kicker. If you believe he is the king, he is the savior, and he is God, do your actions reflect those declarations? How would you treat a king how would you treat a high-ranking government official? Most of you, most of you, not all of you, some of you are rebels, would be very respectful and kind. And like, oh, wow, you're a king. I don't want to upset the king. Does your behavior reflect that of the way you view God? Savior, he does the work that you cannot. Are you grateful? Does your behavior reflect gratefulness that he did what you couldn't? God, he's the author and creator of life. Does your behavior reflect that you have an author and a creator and a sustainer in Jesus. This is what you're going to see the disciples and the, the apostles here. The more they understand properly and declare properly who he is, their behavior changes in a dramatic way. And they're more willing to listen, obey, and even give their life for the King, the Savior, God, Jesus. Okay, so this is why this is so important. These all work together. And this is going to be foundational moving forward for what Jesus is doing and what he's establishing. Okay, so he, he blesses Peter, says, look, Peter, you got this right. Look at verse 16. He says, Simon, Peter, you're right. Because he replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he answered, blessed are you, we're in 17, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, this is important. Jesus praises him, but what is he saying? Hey, Peter, guess what? You're not that smart. God revealed this to you. Okay, I think this is important to understand. If you ever watch a debate between an atheist and a Christian, I would say genuinely, if he's a decent apologist, the, the Christian crushes the atheist okay? because they can't account for morality and creation. But the atheist doesn't come to saving faith at the end of the debate. What am I getting at? It's more than intellectual battling. There is a heart issue. And only the father can change the heart. 
So he's saying, look, Peter, you finally have gotten this right. What changed? It's not your brilliance. It's God's mercy on you to show you I am the Savior, King, and God. It is his absolute kindness towards Peter. That's why it's so important for us as we proclaim Jesus is the only way to God, that we, we realize we're not trying to win an intellectual argument. You're proclaiming who Christ is to you and who you want Christ to be to them. And you're leaving that between them and the Father, that the Father would change their heart, that the Father would reveal that to them, and that they would accept that and come to saving faith because of the Father's work, not because of our work. Okay? So that, that has so much in there. Okay? Now, what's the next piece? So he says, you know, the Father has revealed this to you in heaven. Then he transitions. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Okay, so this is huge. This is huge. Why? Because this is the, the textbook passage that Catholics base the ideology of a pope. Okay? So I'm not trying to make fun of or make light of anything. I just simply want to ask you some questions and I want you to process it. Do you see the word pope? Good. Do you see the word succession? Right? That from Peter comes the next pope and the next pope. And then you don't see an idea of succession, do you? Do you see a succession that somehow he has special revelation from God that exists outside? No. And so I think when you look at that, you're, you're reading into the text. That's called uh, eisegesis. Instead of exegesis, you draw out of the text. Okay? But because of that belief in a pope and the infallibility of the pope and that the pope speaks as God speaks and all these things, um, it created quite a bit of controversy and heresy and bad things. And so in the Protestant Reformation, they corrected this statement, or I would say they attempted to correct it by saying that Peter is not the rock at all. He's not the rock. He's just simply what? He's just simply an apostle. And the rock then is what? The rock is the statement that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, he's the Messiah. So I don't, I don't think that quite lines up. I'm gonna tell you why, okay? I don't have problems with people that think it do, that's fine. But I think grammatically, I tell you, Peter, and on this rock, so you have Petros and Petra. I think it's a pun, it's playing on Peter. And so Peter is the rock, but he's not some special rock. He's simply a part of what the church is built upon, and he moves forward. Why do I say that? I want you to think through this. Right after this verse, we talked about this. You're going to get in the next passage. Peter is called Satan because he tried to rebuke Jesus. And so if you're a disciple, you're going to remember, didn't he just call Peter the rock and say he would build the church on the rock? What is Jesus getting at? I'm going to build this church through flawed, sinful people because it's his church and he's gonna build it. And so when you look at the way that's phrased and put together, it's an incredibly encouraging thing that God is going to do his work through sinful humans. He's going to build his church to praise him, glorify him, reach the nations, teach all that he commanded, Matthew 28, through sinful people. So it's a humbling thing. Through you, Peter, I'm going to do this. 
So then how does he fit as the rock? Okay, we're gonna go to Ephesians chapter two, 19 through 22. And again, I want you guys to catch this. We're putting together all this information because why? We gotta understand what is the church? What does the Bible say the church is? What does the Bible say about Jesus? So we understand these things right. So here we go, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Citizens of what? The kingdom of heaven. And the saints and the members of the household of God, the church. Read 1 Timothy chapter two. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what are we getting at? Peter is an apostle. He is a, he's the rock. He's the little rock. So he's a part of that foundation. So you have the cornerstone and the foundation, the teaching of the apostles. Read Acts chapter 2, right? The teaching of the apostles. Matthew 28, teach all that I commanded you. That is the set foundation the church is built upon. The words of Christ, the commandments of God to us, spoken through the, through the prophets and through the apostles. That's what he's getting at. How is the church started? Acts chapter two, Peter preaches God's word, repentance of sins. Acts chapter eight, he preaches, right? So Peter is the inaugurator. He's the one who kicks it off. He's the mouthpiece. He's the first among equals. He's a part of the foundation that is the apostles. And so this is important. The church is built on the settled foundation of God's word and Christ is the cornerstone. Why is that important? If you, if you build it all, you know you can't build on a foundation that you keep adding to. You can't build on a shifting foundation. I'm not that bright, but is that true builders out there? It's a settled, I got a thumbs up, thank you, okay? It's a settled foundation. It is set, meaning God has spoken and we're built on what he has spoken. It's what we come back to, it's what holds us up and Christ is the cornerstone of that anchor. Why is that so important? Because the next verses are gonna get into how the church bind and loosens and how it is to act. And in chapter 18, it's gonna get into church discipline. Jesus is setting up the fabric, the DNA of the church. This is how a church is to operate. And so you start to see this is why it's so important to pay attention to this. And he says, Peter, you've been given the keys to this kingdom. What's the keys? Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah. He is the payment for sins. That's the key. That's what opens up heaven. Believing that Jesus is the payment for your sin. He does the work you could never do. He takes your punishment, bears the wrath of God. That's the key. And he opens it up, the gates to heaven. When he preaches that, Acts chapter two at Pentecost, he proclaims it. That's the key, opens it up. And so you think through that. So then what is the church to do? Okay, let's look at a couple passages and pay attention, write these things down because when we get to the binding and loosening, this is all gonna come back and it's all gonna make sense, okay, I promise. First Timothy 3.15, this is Paul to Timothy. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. So what is he getting at? The church is to proclaim the truth. It's to be its pillar. And you're to set this up in every city. That's in Acts, that's in Titus. And so he gives them these commands. And then in 2 Timothy 1.14, he says this, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So the church is to do two things. It's to uphold the truth of God's word 
the morality of God's people. So what the church is supposed to do is to uphold that you've moved from a enemy of God to a child of God and the children of God act differently than the children of the devil or the non-Christian. This is what the church is for. It's to remind you of all that God commanded. Matthew 28, teach them all that I commanded you. So it's to guide us in our moral behavior and it's to guide us in what did Jesus actually say? This is why he tells us Titus 1.9. He, so God puts what qualified elders or qualified men over the church. This is he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So it's saying, look, there's going to be people in the world. This is read through the epistles. They're going to come and try to tell God's people, you don't need to listen to the Bible. You don't need to listen to Jesus. You need to listen to this. And he says, I've put elders and pastors over you to help show you that's not what God's word says. That is not what it, you need to come in alignment with what God's word says and correct your behavior. That is wrong. That's why we went through earlier. Hey, Catholics aren't Christians. Mormons aren't Christians. Muslims aren't Christians. There's some nuance in there, you know, but what their doctrinal statements say, would it deny what the scripture says? Put it that way. So that's why it's so important to be a part of the church. God's given it to us to help guide us morally and doctrinally to love and worship him as he says he is. Let's keep working our way through this. So then the church, what does it do? Ephesians 4, 12. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up on the foundation, right, of the body of Christ. So this is so important. This is the bedrock of what helps the church not act like the world. This is why Jesus goes on to now say, look, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then he says, look, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Two things I want you to catch on that. A gate protects from anyone entering in it, correct? Okay, so think about it. So if you have gates, what is it protecting? It's protecting hell or the grave, death. And it's saying that those gates cannot stop God from getting those whom are his. There is no one beyond the reach of God that he will use through the church. So anyone that is his, he will capture, he will take. They are his. No gate can stop them. Death cannot hold them. No one is beyond the reach of Christ. This is why we go out and proclaim Jesus is the only way to God. Nothing can stop that. It's an offensive statement that the church is on offense and that the gates of hell can't stop it. If you want to read it the other way, that's okay, but it still works. Death can't take anyone who is Christ. John 6, all that are his, none can be taken from Christ's hand. None. That should give you great comfort. No one can take you from Jesus. And no one is beyond his grip. Also with this, you should not be afraid to die. Why? Because you will not stay in the grave. It cannot hold you. You will go to be with the Lord. Heaven is your home. You are a citizen of heaven. And the church is to proclaim that message with the keys, Christ opening up the doors and inviting them in. It says death cannot hold them, Christian. 
Do not fear death. It cannot hold you. To be absent on earth is to be present with the Lord. This is what Paul tells us. Okay, so that sets up our church structure. Why is that so important for this next piece right here? Verse 19, for I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So now he's giving specific direction. This will be the function of the church. You can do these things. Now I want you to get out your Bibles. Last service didn't do this well, so I expect you guys to do it better, okay? When you look through here, you should see a little three in your Bible under loosed, right? Or might, maybe you have a letter. Look in your Bibles. I can see your eyes, so I know who's not looking, okay? Look in your Bibles. And it has a footnote. What does that footnote tell you? It tells you that it should read or shall have been. Why does that matter? Because it puts a have in between the shall and been. Okay, that's important. So we're going to get a little technical, but I want you to understand why this matters. It is the perfect future tense, our future perfect tense, meaning it's talking about an action in the past that has future implications. So why does that matter? Because it's saying what has already been declared in heaven will be declared on earth. What has already been excluded from heaven will be future implication excluded on earth. Why does that matter? People will read this passage and they will take it to mean whatever I declare, God has to authorize. They read it backwards. Name it and claim it. Whatever I claim in the name of the Lord, I bind or I loosen, he has to say yes to. Because whatever I declare, he declares. That's a dangerous reading of this passage, isn't it? Okay, all the English teachers said amen, right? Grammar matters. It matters. Also, the way this passage gets abused, I'm telling you, it's a lot of information, but I promise we'll bring it more together, is people will read this passage and they will take this as a, as a prayer passage and they will say, I can bind Satan. The Bible says I can. Okay, well, here's the general response from most pastors. If you bound Satan, why'd you let him out? Right? If you got the ability to hold Satan, keep him there. Why do you keep letting them out? Okay. So what is he getting at then? He's getting at through the church, you will loosen. You will show what is allowed. Like in heaven, what is allowed? It's the role of the church. That's why we walk through those passages, pillar and buttress of truth, sound doctrine, trustworthy word as taught. These are the roles of the church to maintain that. So you come to church, you're supposed to hear God's word and it's supposed to tell you, God says you can't cheat on your wife. God says you need to have pure language. God says marriage is between a man and a woman. You're declaring what God has made allowable. It's the role of the church. And then when people walk outside of God's word, you say that's bound. God said, no. You don't get to get drunk and do whatever you want and call yourself a Christian because you gave money or you come twice a year. It's not what the scripture says. It says you bear fruit. You're connected to the body. You love Christ. You love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. Okay, so there, there's two aspects because when we get to Matthew 18, that's the church discipline. 
And so the way that works on binding and loosening, read 1 Corinthians 5, okay? This is what it's there for. 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man who's having an affair with his mother-in-law. And they are allowing him in the church to say he's a Christian and not repent of his sin. So it is the role of the elders and pastors to say, that is not loosened in the church. It's not allowed in the church. That's bound. It's put out. It's sin. Now, if he repents, that's allowed. First John, right? If we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive. But if he's unrepentant, like 1 Corinthians 5, it says, you move him outside of the church. You've been bound. You are not acting in accordance with God's word and refusing to call God's word correct. You're saying it's allowable for you to cheat on your wife. This is what the, he's giving the instruction to the church. That's what Matthew 18 is for. And okay? so that's, that's part of it. The other part is that when we proclaim the gospel, that you are saved by Jesus' work on the cross, we're loosening, right? Opening up heaven with the keys, saying, come. If you repent of your sin, come. Heaven is open to you. But if you refuse to repent of your sin, change from your sin, you are bound. You are an enemy of Christ. You're outside. You're not a part of the church. You're welcome to the church, but you're not a Christian. This is why it's so important. He's setting up the parameters of what a church is, how a church functions, its its necessities, if you will. So now when you think for you, okay, well then why do I come to church? You come to church to have God's word preached And be reminded over and over again, this is what God says we are to do and not to do. This is what's allowed. This is what is not allowed. And you think, well, I don't know if I need that. Yes, you do. We all need it. This is how he set up the church. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. This is the role of the pastor and elder. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. It says, God instituted the church to look over the souls of the people to make sure that the word of God is taught and upheld. That's 1 Timothy and Titus. This is the most scary verse in all the Bible for me. I care about you guys. And when you guys want to correct me, it kind of scares me because you'll call me names and say mean things to me. But I am more afraid of this as those who have to give an account. I am far more scared of this conversation than this conversation. Don't get me wrong, you guys are awesome, but he's way more scary. God says, I instituted the church through qualified men, elders, pastors, to watch over your soul and help you uphold the word of God. Live as you ought. Live within what is loosened, what is allowed, to deny what is bound, not allowed. And given the keys, proclaim the gospel. Strengthens the believer, reaches the lost. What's the next part of that verse? Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so this is what should be so encouraging now that we've put all of this together. Why do you come to church? To be watched over. To be reminded of what God's word says. To be gently corrected and guided towards godliness and Christ-likeness because the world is going to try and teach us contrary to 
and say, you don't need your Bible. You don't need Christ. You don't need people. You just need you. You be the best you. You live your life. What pleases you? What makes you happy? Think of it this way. Nothing has outlived God's system. For 2,000 years, this book has been preached and lived consistently, and it is without fail. Rome fell. Communism fell. Capitalism rises and falls. All human institutions fall at some point. Christ in 2,000 years has never failed. He is the superior way to live. And he says the church is to maintain and uphold that way of life. You're to hold this book and cherish his words and say his way for marriage is better. His way for spending money is better. His way to raise my children is better. His way is better. And when you come to church, the people remind you and remind you and remind you. That's why we teach the word of God on Sunday morning to the adults, the high schoolers, the junior hires, the kids, the seniors, everybody. It is the governing, guiding principle we're to live by. This is why when Jesus says, upon this rock, Peter, the preaching of God's word, the apostles make that foundation set, the cornerstone, and we build off that foundation. We build off God's word. This is why it comes back to the original statement I said in the beginning. Who do you say Christ is? And does your life reflect that declaration? Because that's what the church is to help us to do. That how we act matches what we declare. Go back to the titles. He's the king. Do you live like you have a king in your life who tells you all that you are to do? He is the savior, Christ, Messiah. Do you live grateful as if someone else paid for your life, created your life, gave you the breath to live your life? And he is God. He is holy. He is perfect. Do you live as if you're under the authority of a perfect God that could turn you into a pillar of salt in an instant? In an instant, does your life reflect your declarations and you hold that tension as we work through the book of Matthew because the more the apostles understand what they're declaring their obedience becomes more and more in line with Christ and they become less and less about putting Jesus on David's throne and overthrowing Rome and it's dying to self and living for Christ the two work together and the church is there to help us in that effort to maintain that lifestyle, to be encouraged and sometimes corrected and steered towards how God would have us to live. Some questions for us to consider, okay? What are the keys to the kingdom? Jesus is the only way to God. He is the payment. He is the savior. Those are the keys. And we take those keys and open up heaven's gates when we proclaim he is the only way to God, and hell cannot stop that proclamation. Two, how long is it taken for the disciples to understand who Jesus is? Lots of time. This is a part of Christian growth. That's the word for that sanctification. The more you understand who he is, 
the more you will love him and the more you want to do what he says because you understand his ways are better than ours. And so when it comes into a time of suffering, you're not going to be like Peter because you're going to grow. You're not going to say, no, Jesus, that can't happen to me. You know, no, no, okay, Jesus, you're the king. You love me. You're the savior. How can I trust you? So the declaration matches the action. The action matches the declaration. Three, what is the role of the church? Right? To preach what is allowable by God's word and what is not allowable by God's word. To declare Jesus is the only way to God and to declare if you do not repent in your sin, you are bound in hell apart from Christ. Right? So it's the preaching of God's word, what's allowed, what's not allowed. It's the declaration of Jesus as the only way to God. And through that, it edifies the church, it builds up the church, and it reaches the lost. Four, why is it important to be connected to your local church? Because it is the lifeline that God has given you to help you live according to his word. It is why it has been sustained for over 2,000 years, because Christians gather and Christians encourage and correct and steer each other towards holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness. And it doesn't matter if Newsom's the governor or Biden's the president, none of it will defeat the church. The church is thriving in China, Afghanistan, Iraq. Nothing will defeat the preaching and teaching of God's word. No matter how crazy it gets here, whether we're preaching in this building on dirt or over off white lane, we are going to preach God's word. The gates of hell will not come against it because Christ said he will build his church. So it's important to be connected to that church as it sustains you, loves you, corrects you, teaches you, and guides you in all the things that God has for you according to his word. And then five, how does this passage encourage your faith? should encourage your faith that nothing can defeat Christ. And if he is your savior, he is yours. And no human, no institution, no demon, no Satan, no death can take that from you. He is yours and you are his forever. That should be very encouraging. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, dear Jesus, we thank you uh, that you love us. We thank you uh, that you came to live and die for us, that you bore the wrath of God in our place. And it's our prayer we would be encouraged through this passage uh, that you've instituted the church to love and protect and guide us. And it's our prayer that we would uh, take serious your words when preached, that we would love you more and want to be more like you each day, each time. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Because what's cool about December is uh, that we, we start uh, what's called Advent, right? It's the preparation for celebrating the first coming of Jesus. And so each Sunday, there's a different highlight aspect of what Jesus did that we celebrate. And so we know that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And so as the Prince of Peace, that also plays a role in communion. And so we're going we're gonna to take two, two things and marry them together because they fit very, very well. And so communion at LBC is something that Christians practice. 
Uh, They practice to remember what Jesus did on the cross, that he dies in our place. He bears the wrath of God in our place, that his uh, body broken, that's the bread, his blood shed, that's the juice, uh, in our place on our behalf. Now, the reason he had to do that was Roman 5 will tell us that we were once enemies of God. And through the work of Christ, peace with God has been made. Okay, so let's look at this. Colossians 1.19. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, when it says Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it's not saying that there won't be war in the world. It's saying that when you become his child, when you accept the payment of Jesus, you're no longer at war with God. You're no longer an enemy. You're a child. That's a beautiful thing. And when we sin, we act like an enemy, although we're a child. And so that sin, it builds in that relationship. And so communion is the gathering of God's people and confessing of sin and asking Christ for forgiveness of that sin because we are children that are acting like enemies. So as you go through communion, it's, it's that time to bear unto Christ. Christ, I, here's my selfishness. Here's my, you know, the way I covet, the way I have greed the idolatry, the things I love more than you, the hostility, the hate, the anger I have. You died and paid for that sin. Please forgive me. And 1 John tells us that if we confess, he is faithful to forgive. So communion then is the celebration and remembrance of that payment and that forgiveness. That's why we always end communion with a celebration. The celebration that we are no longer enemies. We are at peace with God through Christ. Therefore, we celebrate. We are his children and not at war with him. And so I'm going to pray and you're going to have some time to take uh, the elements on your own. I recommend you go bread first, then juice so that you don't spill the juice trying to get to the bread. And you're going to take that in your own time, in your own space. and Just reflect on the sin you need forgiven. And then after a while, John's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a great celebration that we are no longer enemies. We are children of God, loved by God, forgiven by God, and we'll spend eternity with God because of Christ, because of the work of Christ. It'll be a great celebration. So pray with me uh, and then we'll, we'll partake. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you did what we couldn't that you lived the perfect life, you lived the perfect death, that you, uh, knowing that we didn't deserve you to bear the wrath of God on our behalf, did it anyway because of your kindness, because of your goodness. So I pray as we ask for forgiveness, we would remember how much you love us, how kind and gentle and merciful you are towards us, And that we would come out of this confession of sin and remembrance of the cross with deep gratitude and gratefulness. Then we would sing boldly with gratefulness and thankfulness for the work of Christ on our behalf. We are a people to be most excited because of Jesus. Be with us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.